We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island. It becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, Daniel, I was wondering, how heavy are the fundamental particles? Oh, man, it's a really big range from very light to pretty massive. But like how heavy and how massive? Like how can I get a handle on on these numbers? Well, one way to do it is to think about electrons like cats. Mm. I mean like electric cats? <laughs> no, no, no. Think about it in relative terms. If an electron was like the mass of a cat instead of its super tiny mass, then how heavy would a muon be? Well, a muon is 200 times heavier, so a muon would be like a walrus. All right, yeah, that's pretty heavy stuff. And your lightest quarks, the ones that make up the protons and neutrons inside your body, the up and down quarks, if the electron has the mass of a cat, then the quarks would be about as heavy as a typical dog. Mmm, I see. And does the light quark also chase the electron? They do, actually, but it's this pretty stable circle. They've been running in circles for billions of years. <laughs> <laughs> like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. But what about the top quark? I hear that one's pretty heavy. Yeah, so if the electron is a cat, then the top quark would be six blue whales. Wow. Yeah, that is bigger than a cat. It's 350,000 cats. Are the whales electric too? <laughs> They're more positive.
Hi, I'm Jorge, I'm a cartoonist and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and I weighed the top quark for my PhD thesis. Oh, did you really? That was your, like, the title of your thesis? I weigh one of the fundamental particles and this is what I found. <laughs> Click to find out more. Yeah, sort of. We are very curious about exactly how much mass each of these particles has. And back when I was a PhD student, the newly discovered particle was the top quark and it was crazy heavy and everybody wanted to know exactly how heavy was it. So my thesis and postdoc work were like fancy statistical techniques to extract as much information as possible to get the mass of the top quark. Wow. It was a heavy burden. <laughs> Did your thesis also weigh a lot? Like, was it a thousand pages? It was a pretty massive topic, yeah. Was it printed in the, the size of a <laughs> top quark? I thought at some point that I was going to collapse into a black hole during the writing of this thesis. <laughs> From all the snacks you were eating <laughs> while you were writing it? As my thesis got longer and longer, I thought, what is the short style radius of a PhD thesis anyway? But anyways, welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we put the whole universe on a scale to understand exactly what it's made of and how its little bits work. We examine all of the tiny little moving parts to understand how they work, how much stuff they have, how they interact with each other, and how that all comes together in an incredible chaotic dance to make the world that we know. Yeah, because it is a pretty massively cool universe full of giant, incredible things that defy our brains in terms of their size and scale. And also the tiniest, smallest things that you can even imagine. Some of these things are tinier than tiny. That's right. And that feeling you get when you look out into the universe, that there are these really different scales that like you are so much smaller than the Earth. And the Earth is so much smaller than the sun, which is tiny compared to the galaxy. That same kind of thing happens also for particle physics. There are particles that are a million times heavier than other particles. And so we have this broad spectrum of masses. One of the great mysteries of particle physics is understanding exactly why that is. Yeah, the smallest of scales in our universe, there's a whole zoo of particles that not only exist, but that can exist and do exist sometimes in the universe. And they all weigh a different amount. And particle physicists really care about exactly how much they weigh. Because sometimes our theories predict how much they should weigh. And so if they don't weigh exactly the amount we expect, then we know something is wrong. Something is new in the universe that we didn't understand. And sometimes that's a clue that reveals a whole new chain of discoveries. Mm. Isn't that a little awkward though, Daniel? Like what would you do if there were a whole bunch of physicists uh, really interested in how much you weighed or how massive you are? I would be flattered. I'm like, wow, I'm so important to the universe. There are grants being written about me, particle accelerators being devised just to accelerate Daniel and anti-Daniel together. Mm. There'd be a physics paparazzi outside your house <laughs> all the time trying to shoot particles at you. Wouldn't that be kind of annoying at some point? Over here, Daniel, over here. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. They'd be like, don't have any more chocolate. We just spent $10 million measuring how heavy you are. Are you just going to change the answer? You can't just do that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, don't go on a diet. We throw out uh, all of that literature. No, the truth is I would hate to be the subject of so much scrutiny. I'm such an introvert. That would be a nightmare. But maybe you're making the point that we don't ask these particles if they want to be studied, right? Nobody got their consent to be part of our experiments. Yeah, what if they uh, want to keep their mass private? Well, the interesting thing about particles is that they don't have mass as an individual property. Like I weigh a different amount than you do and then every other person out there does. But particles all basically have the same mass if they're the same type. In fact, it's sort of the way we categorize particles. Like the difference between an electron and a muon is a muon is a heavier version of the electron. But 
all the muons out there have exactly the same mass because they're all part of the same quantum field. They're all just ripples in the same field. Yeah, well, even taking a step back, it's sort of amazing that you can break down everything in the universe into like a short list of little tiny particles, you know, sort of like the universe is made out of only five or six or nine Lego pieces. And it's interesting that all of these Lego pieces are just a little bit different from each other. They not only have different like charges and quantum numbers, but they, they weigh differently. Yeah, and particle physics is all about finding those patterns, saying what do these particles have in common and what's different about these particles. And the reason we do that is that we're hoping to reveal some deeper layer of reality. We think that probably these five or six or 12 Lego pieces aren't the fundamental nature of reality. They aren't the most basic parts of our existence, that they're more like the atoms we see that are made of smaller pieces. And that by arranging the fundamental particles and studying the patterns, we can get some clues as to what might be going on underneath. Yeah, and as you said, physicists are really interested in knowing what the exact masses of these particles are because I guess you want to get the model right, right? Like if the model is off by even a little bit, you're wrong about the universe. Yeah, and because the masses tell us a lot about how these particles are connected to each other. Remember that when particles fly through the universe, they're never just a tiny dot flying through empty space. They're flying through lots of quantum fields and interacting with those fields. And how they interact with those fields changes how they move, and that's part of how they get their mass. So by measuring the mass of these particles, we can tell something about how they're touching all these other fields. So it's a very, very sensitive probe of the particles and how they talk to the other particles. Yeah, and so if we've known about these particles for a bit of a long time now, and we've measured their mass. I mean, if you did it for your thesis, that must have been what, like, 100 years ago? <laughs> 200. Don't try to flatter me. <laughs> Last year, maybe. <laughs> but but well, they've been measured before, right? Like, that's one of the first things you did when you discovered these particles, when physicists discovered them, it was measure how much they weigh. That's right. But it's a long project. First, you discover the particle and you just know that it exists. Then you start to study its properties. One of the first things you do, as you said, is to measure its mass. The first measurements are usually very imprecise because you only have a handful of examples. You just discover this thing. You have barely enough data to show that it exists. But as you accumulate more data and your techniques get fancier and fancier, then your measurements get more and more precise. And then you can start asking really interesting questions about like, is the mass what we expected it to be? Does it make sense to us? Yeah. Does it make sense in terms of the theory that you have from the math, right? Mm -hmm. And does it all hang together? Like there needs to be some self-consistency. Right, right. And it seems like every time you do an experiment, you're refining that measurement, like you're adding more uh, numbers down the decimal uh, places of how much you how well you know this, the mass of them. Yeah, and there's really two different ways that you can do that. One is just do more experiments, you get more data, and that can reduce what we call the statistical uncertainty, like the chance that you accidentally measured the wrong number due to a quantum fluctuation. But then later, once you have enough data, the real work is in understanding the data that you have to remove sources of bias because that becomes the dominant source of the uncertainty. So it can take years or even decades before the final answers come out about these measurements. The most precise results are sometimes arrived at 10 years after the last bit of data was taken. Well, we've been doing this for a while, weighing the particles. And I think as it, in general, we've sort of feel that we or we felt that we had a pretty good handle on what these particles weighed. But recently, there's been some big news about our maybe big error about them. That's right. Last week, we released a paper to the world about a new measurement of the mass of one of the heaviest particles, a W boson. This is the particle that communicates the weak force. 
and the CDF collaboration, a group working at Fermilab, where actually I was a postdoc, so I did my research on that experiment, released a paper measuring the mass of this thing with unprecedented precision. Like the uncertainty they claim on their measurement is much smaller than anybody has ever achieved. So it should be a very, very precise measurement of the mass. But the answer they got, the measurement they made of the mass, the number was a big surprise to everybody. Mm, and it made uh, big news. Uh, you were telling me that it was all over uh, the science pages of all the major newspapers. That's right. It actually was the cover of Science, which is basically the biggest journal. And it was all over the news. And a bunch of listeners wrote in and said, hey, what's going on with this measurement? And also, hey, Daniel, I saw your name on this paper. What's up? What? What's up indeed? So you're, you're one of the authors of this paper? I am, in fact, one of the authors of this paper. Mm, out of how many? 389. <laughs> <laughs> 389 authors? What was your position in there? Were you near the top or the bottom or is it alphabetical? It's alphabetical, so I'm always mm. near the end of the list. <laughs> Who goes after you, Mr. Uh, xylophone? <laughs> We have collaborators from all over the world. So we have every letter from the Hungarians whose names start with two A's to Chinese collaborators whose name starts with Z-H. So I'm not close to the end of the list. Mm. Well, I, in my field, at least when I was working uh, on research, um, being near the end means you were more senior. So that's a good thing, right? <laughs> it can be a good thing. In our field, though, we have this sort of ridiculous policy where anybody who has contributed in any way to building the detector or running the experiment is an author on every paper that uses that data, even if it comes out years later. I've worked on this experiment in almost 10 years, but they still put my name on every paper, which is kind of ridiculous. Wow. So did you get to like type one word out of the whole paper or something? It's kind of embarrassing, but I didn't know about this paper until just a few days before the news broke. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. It's like, hey, we're including you in this uh, paper. You might win a Nobel Prize. Um, good luck. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> it's sort of silly and it just speaks to how like modern science is done in these really big collaborations and the publishing system hasn't really caught up to that. You know, 389 authors sounds like a lot, but in my current collaboration on Atlas at the Large Hadron Collider, we have 5,000 authors on every paper and we publish more than 120 papers every year. That means twice a week there's a paper going out with my name on it. I don't even know the titles of most of the papers that my name is on. And some of them I couldn't even explain the title to you. So being an author on these papers doesn't really mean that much. Then how do you know it's good signs? Like what if they discover one of them um, was not correct? Wouldn't that look bad on you? I think that's an excellent question. And I think in a perfect world, everybody who's an author in every paper should be responsible for the scientific content of that paper. I think that we know that that's not how things are working right now. And we need to revise somehow the way these authorship policies work. And I've actually proposed inside my collaboration that we do change that, that we don't have everybody be an author in every paper but there was a lot of resistance to that proposal. Mm, I guess there's some politics. Uh, but on the plus side, you probably get residuals and royalties, right, from these papers? <laughs> you know that in science, you pay to publish, right? You don't get paid to publish. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so. You get negative royalties. <laughs> exactly. No, but if you go Google my name, I have something like more than a thousand papers with my name on it. Only a hundred of those are like my actual scientific output. Most of them are work done by my colleagues, and I'm sure it's all excellent. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so this paper that your name is on uh, was big news. And in fact, it was massive news. And so today on the podcast, we'll be asking the question. 
Is the W boson too massive? Feels like a very judgmental title here, Daniel. Like, how can something <laughs> how can something be too massive? Well, it has a higher mass than is predicted by the theory, and higher mass than other measurements. So their new result that came out is bigger than the previous measurement. So it means if they're right, then the W boson is in fact more massive than we thought it was and more massive than our current theory can explain. Well, I'm curious to see what happened. Did the W boson gain weight or was somebody leaning on the scale or something? <laughs> but it's a very small difference kind of, right? Like what was the old measurement and what was the, what's the new measurement? So the old measurement is quoted in weird units, which is why in the intro we talked about cats, but the units are mega electron volts. So that's millions of electron volts. And for calibration, about a thousand of these MEVs are about what a proton weighs. So the previous measurement of a W boson was about 80,370 MEVs. So like 80.4 almost protons. Mm. And now what did they measure it to be? The new one they measured to be 80,434. So it's an increase of about 64 of these MEVs. I didn't quite spot the difference between those two numbers, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure to a physicist, it's a huge difference. It's a very small difference. You're right. You know, it's a difference of 64 MEV out of 80,000. So it's very, very precise. Issue is that the theory predicts it to be 80,357 with a very small uncertainty of about six. So the old measurement was 80,370, and the new measurement is 80,434. Yeah, again, I'm not uh, catching the difference. I feel like um, it, it's maybe like, uh, maybe we can put it in terms of percentage. It's like 0.1% different, maybe less. Yeah, so the difference between the old measurement and the new measurement is less than 0.1% relative to the W's mass. Mm. And I guess that sounds like a little, but to a physicist, that's um, massive, shall we say. It's huge, right? Because if it doesn't match the theory, then there's either something wrong with the experiment or something wrong with the theory. Yeah, the key thing is not how big is this difference of 64 MeVs relative to the W's mass. That's tiny. The key is to compare this difference to how well we know these numbers. The difference is 64 MeVs in the measurement. The uncertainty is 10 MeVs. So like they are very certain in this new measurement relative to the other measurement. So like the uncertainty is one sixth of this difference. All right. Well, um, it's a big uh, result and made all the news. And, um, and a lot of people asked you to uh, come on the podcast and explain it, right? That's right. Folks were wondering what this meant for physics. Did it really break science like all those SciComm journalism headlines said? And so they wanted us to talk about it. Oh, man, I hope it didn't break <laughs> science because then we have to return it. Is science have a warranty on it? <laughs> or wait, we can return it. <laughs> well, as usual, we were wondering how many people out there had heard of this uh, headline and knew what it meant, what the difference between the W boson's mass could mean. And so, since this was a late-breaking news event, instead of asking our cadre of internet volunteers, I just walked around campus here at UC Irvine to see, had undergrads heard the big news about the W boson? Yeah, and so you went out there into the campus and you asked people if they had heard of this interesting measurement and does it worry them? Here's what people had to say. Have you heard of the W boson? I only heard boson, but not W. Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think it means if scientists discover that the W boson is a little heavier than it's supposed to be? I don't care. Have you heard of the W boson? No, I haven't. What do you think it might be? Probably a policy in place for like environmental aspects. 
Okay. And what do you think it would mean if scientists discovered that some particle is heavier than it's supposed to be? Ooh, not so good. That's um, not so good, to be honest. And I've heard of the boson, not the W boson. Okay. What do you think it means if scientists discover that the W boson is a little heavier than it's supposed to be? I'm not sure. Does it make you worried? Yes. Have you heard of the W boson? No. What do you think it is? Boson shaped like a W. And what do you think it means if scientists discover that it's heavier than it's supposed to be? That it's fat. Have you heard of the W boson? No. <laughs> no? Do you have any guess what it might be? No, my first year. No. <laughs> um, what do you think it means if scientists discover that some particle is heavier than it's supposed to be? It's more like charged? I don't know. <laughs> All right, great. Thank you. Do you know what the W boson is? Have you heard of it? No. Uh, what do you think it might mean if scientists discover that it's a little bit heavier than it's supposed to be? Maybe it might be a bad thing. Does it make you worried? Kind of, but not really, since I don't really know what it is. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what do you think it means if the W boson is a little heavier than it's supposed to be? Means the interaction uh, length is a little shorter. Does it make you worried? Mm, no, makes me excited. <laughs> New physics. All right, the question is, do you know what the W boson is? No, I do not. If you had to guess, what do you think it might be? Uh, maybe a science law? I don't know. <laughs> okay. And uh, what do you think it means if scientists discover that a particle is heavier than it's supposed to be? They just didn't find it correctly last time. No, I don't. If you had to guess, what do you think it might be? Something with either physics or chemistry. Okay. And if scientists measure a particle and discover that it's more massive than it's supposed to be, what do you think that means? Um, maybe there's something else smaller than that particle. That's possible if it's bigger than we think it is. Okay, cool. Thank you. The W boson. I'm not familiar. You have to guess. A particle? A particle, cool. And if scientists measure a particle and discover that it's heavier than it's supposed to be, what do you think that might mean? It's something unstable or that it's not functional in a, in a normal manner. All right. Not a lot of people had maybe heard of this. <laughs> Nobody had any idea what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> some people thought it was some sort of policy or some particle shaped like a W. I was kind of surprised. I thought the W boson was a little better known than that. Mate's only famous in uh, certain circles, <laughs> certain scales. Like if you're really small, <laughs> then uh, the W boson is big. Yeah, well, I thought the W boson was going to get a W, but it looks like it got an L instead. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because this time you went out into the campus, which is more of a maybe general audience than the one that you find online, because online you sort of get a lot of listeners of this podcast. Yeah. And I think that listeners of the podcast probably have an idea of what the W boson is, but maybe don't necessarily understand why it's important to measure its mass and what this new measurement means and if we can believe it. Well, I guess to start with, for those of us who don't know what a W boson is, Daniel, can you explain it to us? Yeah, as you described earlier, we know that the world around us is made of tiny little particles. The stuff that makes up you and me and the table in front of us is not smooth and continuous like it seems. It's more like a mesh with these little points of matter connected by forces. And so we've discovered that the little points of matter are made out of tiny little bits of stuff. And we call those matter particles, fermions like quarks and electrons. But there are also the forces that tie those things together. And those forces you can think about as communicated via a field, like an electric field from an electron. But you can also think about them as communicated via particles. So we call these force particles, like ripples in those fields. 
And so, for example, when an electron pushes against another electron, you can think about that as like ripples in their electromagnetic fields or exchanging virtual particles. In this case, it would be a photon. So every force that you know about has a particle associated with it. Electromagnetic field has the photon, the strong force has the gluon. The weak nuclear force, the weakest of all the forces we know, actually has three of these particles, the W plus, the W minus, and the Z. So they're sort of like heavier versions of the photon for the electroweak force. Right. And I think this is something that maybe confuses a lot of people, or at least it confuses me, you know, this idea that, you know, when you take high school physics or, you know, even college physics, you sort of think of forces as just these in invisible things. Like, you know, the earth is pushing me down through some invisible force or, you know, a magnet repels another magnet through some invisible force. But you're saying that actually what's going on, it's like they're exchanging sort of invisible particles when something is pushing against something else? It's a bit of a subtle question. We did a podcast recently about what is a particle. And one way to think about how particles push against each other is that each particle creates a field and that field pushes on other particles. So when two electrons come near each other, each one has an electric field that pushes on the other particle. A totally equivalent mathematically and philosophically acceptable way to think about it is instead of fields to think about particles being exchanged. So an electron comes by another one and it shoots a photons at the other electron. You might think like photons. I mean, I don't see light. I don't see like bright flashes of light between electrons. Well, these aren't things that you see, right? You can't see a photon unless it hits your eye. These are photons that are shot back and forth between the electrons. And sometimes there are a special category of particles we call virtual particles that don't follow all the same rules that normal real particles that you observe do. If you're interested in the subtleties there, we have a whole podcast episode about what are virtual particles. Right. It's interesting that like, you know, the, the force that one magnet pushes on another magnet is basically the same thing as the light that hits your eyeball from the sun, right? It's, it's sort of hard to square the two, but they're the same thing. Because one feels tactile and the other one feels visual, but they're the same thing. They are the same thing, depending on your definition of same thing. They're all part of a larger phenomenon, which is electromagnetism. Right? They can be different aspects of it. It's like saying, are electric fields the same as magnetic fields? Well, not exactly, but they are two sides of the same coin. And so in that sense, they are the same. Every force that's applied via electromagnetism is communicated via electromagnetic fields. And all information that moves through electromagnetic fields, you can think of as photons. Like every ripple in those fields, every piece of information where the field was one way and now it's another way, that you can think of as a photon. Mm. And so the photon is basically the thing that carries force or the electromagnetic force. And so the W boson is the, the one of the things that carries the force for the weak force, which is one of the fundamental forces. Exactly. The weak force is one of the fundamental forces. And it actually has three of these particles that carry its forces, which seems weird. Like, why does it need three? It's busier, you know, it needs more staff. <laughs> it needs three sort of because we've already done some unification. Like we found the W plus, we found the W minus, we found the Z and we realized, oh, these are actually all part of the same thing. Originally, people found the Z and the W separately. And they're like, oh, these are different phenomena until scientists put them together into one idea called the weak force. And so those sort of fit together very nice as part of the same force. And so we have those three particles, the W plus, the W minus, and the Z that we now call carriers of the weak force, the force particles for the weak force. Mm, okay, so this one is a force particle. Does that mean that uh, we're not actually made out of W bosons or 
Is it somehow sort of these uh, things trapped inside of me? It's another great philosophical question, right? There are W bosons inside you right now because there are particles that are feeling the weak force, right? Some particle of potassium, for example, is decaying radioactively right now from the banana that you just ate. And that's happening via the weak force. So there's a W inside you right now. Are you made up of Ws? It's a little bit harder to say. Like you're made up of the matter that's inside you, but a lot of your mass actually comes from the energy and the bonds inside that matter. Like your matter comes from your protons, but the mass of the protons mostly comes from gluons inside you. So I would say that you are made up of those matter particles and also the force particles. You definitely need them to make up Jorge. Mm, yes, and that's important for sure, especially um, bananas. So then uh, is the W boson helping keep me together? Is this something that sort of helps things, you know, stay as one piece? Or does it only happen when things decay or things break down? The W boson is part of the weak force and it's really, really weak. And so it doesn't play a role in holding together quarks into protons and neutrons. And it doesn't play a role in terms of holding the atom together, like electrons surrounding the nucleus. And so it doesn't really play a role in holding things together. It mostly plays a role when things break down. When a neutron decays into a proton, for example, that happens via the weak force. Mm, I see. All right. Well, but it's still important because, you know, it tells us a lot about how things break down, which is kind of an important process in the, the way the universe works. And it's also important because it's a cousin of the photon. The W's and the Z are actually very closely related to the photon. They're just sort of like heavy versions of the photon. And the way that we group those three particles together, the W plus, W minus, and the Z into the weak force, we can actually include the photon into that, making a quartet of force particles that all fit together really beautifully. And we call that unified force the electroweak force, where we combine electromagnetism and the weak force into one idea. Mm, I see. So it's only famous because of its cousin. That, that feels a little uh, nepotistic there. <laughs> it's part of the entourage of famousness. <laughs> yeah, it's the guy who gets the water whenever the uh, photon is thirsty. The photon doesn't roll without the W boson. <laughs> All right. Well, it's one of the fundamental particles and it's important because it's in particle interactions and it helps define our theory of the universe. And so recently scientists measured it to be different than we thought it was. And so let's get into that measurement and what it could mean. But first, let's take a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize, wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like how you feel when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, while Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording all this? So it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Personally, I've used Mint Mobile, and the calls are always so crisp and so clear. All of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So it's time to ditch your overpriced wireless and go with Mint Mobile's limited time deal for three months a premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks, 
bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash universe. That's mintmobile.com slash universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Slower speeds above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right, we're talking indiscreetly about the W bosons mass, Daniel. I guess there's a lot of interest in knowing how much this thing weighs. Do you think the W's out there are blushing? <laughs> can, can, do they have color? <laughs> do they have color charge for them to turn red no you're right they are colorless they are colorless mm, they are, they are colorless yeah, so yeah. maybe they don't care mm. <laughs> all right so there was a big headline recently that the mass of the dewey boson is heavier is more than what we thought or what the theory predicts and so uh daniel i guess maybe a more basic question is why does a force particle need mass for isn't it just transmitting forces it doesn't need mass and a lot of the force particles don't have mass right the photon doesn't the eight gluons none of them have mass but this particle has mass it doesn't need mass and we think back in the very early universe it didn't have mass but then it got massive because of the higgs boson mm, interesting so it doesn't need mass but it somehow has mass and it's all because of the higgs boson it's all because of the Higgs boson, exactly. Remember how the photon and these particles fit together beautifully into this nice quartet. And there'd be this very nice symmetry. For those of you interested in the mathematical details, it's a gauge symmetry where you can like rotate these particles into each other and it preserves all sorts of interesting properties. That only works if these particles are all massless. None of them have any mass. And we think in the very early universe, that was true. And the W and the Z had no mass and they flew around the universe just the way the photon does. And in fact, we think the weak force was much stronger because its particles weren't so massive so they could fly further 
and interact more. But then the Higgs boson came along and it broke that symmetry. You may have heard the phrase electroweak symmetry breaking. That's what this refers to. It made the W's and the Z's very heavy and it left the photon massless. Mm, yeah, I guess it's kind of weird to think of a force particle as having mass because first of all, um, that means it's, it's slower, right? Like it can't go at the speed of light. And two, does that mean that it like costs you to exert a force, you know, if you have to use mass? Or where does that mass come from if you are pushing one thing from another with the weak force? It definitely costs you to create W's and Z's is harder than it is to create photons. That's why it took us longer to discover them at colliders. The W's and the Z's were only discovered in the 80s at CERN when we had enough energy in colliders to make them. And then if you don't have enough energy to make them, you can make them as virtual versions where you like borrow the energy temporarily from the universe to make this heavy particle. But the heavier the particle is, the less likely you are to be able to borrow that energy. So to like borrow enough energy to quantum fluctuate a W out of the vacuum is much less likely than it is for lower mass particles. Mm, is that where the name weak force comes from? Because it sort of like it's really hard to do so nobody ever uses it kind of. <laughs> <laughs> that is why the weak force is weak because its particles are massive. Exactly. Mm. And it also means that it doesn't have a lot of range, right? Like if something has mass, it eventually it decays. And so like you can't shoot a W boson from here to the Mars because it, it's not going to get there. Yeah, the universe likes to spread out its energy. It doesn't like to have a lot of energy density in one particle. And so if a particle can decay to less mass particles, it will. So the reason your electrons are stable is because there's nothing lighter than an electron that it can decay into. But a W can decay into things, and so it will very quickly. Like a W naturally lives for 10 to the minus 25 seconds. What? So you have 10 to the minus 25 seconds to measure its weight? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into the details, but you can't actually weigh Ws directly, and you can't see them directly. Oh. All right, well, that sounds like a perfect transition here to talk about how you do measure the mass of a force particle if it's so hard. Well, the first thing to understand is that you don't measure its weight, right? You measure its mass. The difference there is that weight is the force of gravity on an object or mass we think of as an inherent quantity, although you can get into whole philosophical questions about what is mass and where does it come from. But mass is something that you have even if you're not in a gravitational field, right? So you would weigh different on Saturn than you do on Jupiter than you do on Earth, but your mass is the same. So that's the quantity we're interested in. You're trying to measure not how much um, it weighs on Earth, but like how hard it is to get it accelerated or how much energy it costs to make this mass, right? Yeah, how much inertia it has, how much it bends space. The other problem is that you can't really use gravity to measure these things. Like if I asked you how massive is that bag of onions, you would put it on a scale and you would use gravity. You would say, I know how much gravitational force there is on it so I can deduce what its mass is. No, I would just smash it against another bag of onions. <laughs> there Isn't you that go. what physicists do? <laughs> You're a natural physicist now, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Make some fricassee or something. Exactly. And so the reason we can't do that with particles is that they don't weigh very much. You know, these amounts we talked about earlier are tiny. And so the gravitational force on a W boson, it exists but it's basically impossible to measure, even though the W is one of the most massive particles. And so instead, we don't measure its weight, we measure its mass. Mm. All right, well then how do you measure its mass? Well, we would love to measure its mass by seeing like how it moves so we can measure its inertia, right? But we can't do that either because as we said before, the W doesn't last for very long. When we make it in our colliders, it lasts for 10 to the minus 25 seconds before it decays into other stuff. And so because we can't ever see the W directly, 
All we can do is look at that other stuff the W turned into and try to reconstruct what its mass was. Mm, right, because I think other particles that do fly for a while, you can see like how much they bend in a magnetic field and things like that. And that kind of tells you its momentum, which tells you its mass, right? Exactly. So you use E equals MC squared. And you say, well, the mass of the W boson is getting converted into the energy of these other particles it turns into. If you have some particle that's really heavy, but you can't see it directly because it doesn't last for very long, it turns into other particles that you can see, then you can measure the energy or the momentum of those particles. And from that energy, you can reconstruct how much mass the original heavy particle had because its mass is getting turned into the energy of those particles. Mm, be like trying to see how much Daniel Whiteson weighs by weighing your kids. <laughs> sort of. It's more like measuring the brightness of a nuclear bomb and using that to figure out how much fuel there was. Mm, like what was there before things broke apart? Exactly. If I took all this energy that was released and asked how much mass is that equivalent to, then you're weighing the mass that was converted into energy. So that's what we're doing with the W. We're seeing the parts that fly out, the decay products of the W. We're measuring their energy or their momentum, depending on the particle. And we're using that to figure out how massive the W must have been. Mm. Well, that sounds straightforward, but uh, there are difficulties, right? It's tricky. It is tricky. And one reason is that the W doesn't always decay to visible particles. Like the way that they measure its mass is when the W decays to a muon and a neutrino. And the muon, you can see, it flies through a detector, it bends in a magnetic field. You can measure that bending so you can deduce the momentum of the muon. The neutrino, however, flies right through your detector and you can't see it. It's invisible. So that makes the problem a little harder. Yeah, I guess you need all the pieces to get a good, <laughs> accurate measurement of what the thing looked like when it was put together, right? If you're missing a piece, then you're not going to be able to tell how much the thing weighed originally. It makes it harder. You can do a better measurement if you have all the pieces. But even if you have half the pieces, you can still make a measurement. Like imagine you could only see half of a nuclear bomb's explosion. The fact that you know you're seeing half of it means you can extrapolate to the other half, right? As long as you know what you're missing, you can guess what might have been there. So they measure the mass of the W just by seeing one of these particles that flies out. Mm, but then you sort of need to know what the, the missing particles parts are, right? And that's where your models come in. That's where a lot of our models come in. And that's where a lot of the really careful experimental work comes in to figuring out how to do this very, very precisely. Yeah, because there's a lot of like uncertainty, right? And so you need a lot of data to make sure that what you're measuring is correct, right? Yeah, you want to see a lot of examples to make sure you're not seeing anything weird, any random fluctuations. And in the latest measurement, they had 4 million examples of W bosons decaying either to an electron or into a muon. But that's not really the problem. The challenge these days is not getting enough examples of Ws. They think they have enough. The challenge is making sure there aren't biases. Like when your muon flies through its magnetic field and you're using its curvature in that field to measure its momentum, are you sure you know exactly how strong your magnetic field is? Has one of your magnets that makes that magnetic field slipped by one millimeter in the 30 years since some grad student installed it? How would you know? And so it's that level of scrutiny, that level of detailed understanding required to make a precise measurement of the mass of the W. Right, because I guess if your instrument is off, all of your results are going to be off, right? Like if there's a blur in your microscope, you're going to think that you know, what you're measuring has a blur in it. Exactly. And that's why this measurement has taken so long. You know, they stopped collecting data in 2012 and this measurement came out now. It took them 10 years to understand in gory detail exactly 
What does that magnetic field look like? How does the detector respond? They did things like looking at cosmic rays, muons from space to see how they fly through the detector to understand exactly where every piece of it is down to the micron. Wow, that would sort of drive me crazy, right? If you have to worry about, you know, your experiment, which is huge, but you have to worry about it down to like the particle level. Like, are all the particles in my instrument okay? Or are they somehow being you know, shaped or moved by some cosmic force. Yeah, and it reveals something cool about these experiments, which is that there are very different kinds of physics you can do. There's the folks who are like, let's look for an exciting signature of something new that if we see it, we know it's there and it's like a big press release. And there are other folks who are like, I want to very carefully understand this one particle to gory detail, even if it requires 10 years of super fine understanding of how the detector works. It's just sort of like a different way to do science. And so I imagine that people have been working on this for, you know, decades and they've been refining this measurement of this one particle and they've got some new results out a few days ago. That's right, they did. And their answer shocked the world. All right. Well, let's get into this massive shock, this massive discovery about the W boson and what it could mean. But first, let's take another quick break. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities, but it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. All right, Daniel. So who got to tell the W boson that it weighs more than it should? Well, maybe the W boson is like you. It doesn't read science journals, <laughs> so it doesn't even know. I thought you were going to say, it's like me who doesn't care how much I weigh. <laughs> I hope we could all be so lucky. Maybe the W is listening to this podcast and this is how it's finding out. Oh, no, that would be awkward. Sorry. <laughs> you look great, W boson. <laughs> so they did a big measurement. It's sort of, it's a new measurement, right? Or it's something they've been measuring for a long time and only just now they published the results. Yeah, and you might be surprised to hear that this is not a measurement that's coming from CERN. It's not from our new fancy collider, the Large Hadron Collider that discovered the Higgs boson. This is from the previous generation, the last champion, the Tevatron just outside Chicago, which has the energy of about one-seventh the Large Hadron Collider and turned off in 2012. But they've been biding their time and working carefully on this measurement for 10 years, having just released it. Wait, what? They did the measurement back in 2012 and they've been just processing the data for 10 years? The last collisions were in 2012. And yes, they've been processing the data and analyzing it and thinking about how to bring down these uncertainties and measuring the location of the detector and calibrating it and double checking it and double checking those double checkings and then hiring somebody else to independently cross calibrate those double checkings. Oh, I see. Like if you find that there's a bias in your instrument, you don't fix the instrument. You just fix the data to account for it. Well, they spent the last 10 years developing these tools to measure the W boson and to get the answer. They didn't know what the answer was until very recently. We do this thing in particle physics where we blind ourselves from the answer to avoid biasing ourselves. We don't want to change the way we're analyzing the data to get the answer that we want or the answer we expect. So they actually added a random number to all of their data so that nobody who was working on the analysis would know what answer to expect. And they only unblinded it. They only removed that random number in 2020, just about a year and a half ago. Wow, that's wild. So they like corrupt the data. So a little bit, right? So that you don't like look for the you, like you don't manipulate your analysis to get the answer. You like you're supposed to work in your analysis independent of what the data says. And we're not worried about like explicit manipulation where people are like fudging the results. We're worried about like subtle biases. For example, if you get the answer you expect, you stop looking for mistakes. Whereas if you get the answer you don't expect, you keep looking for bugs. And so what happens is people just leave bugs in if they cancel each other out. Or they leave bugs in if they give them the answer they expect, which might not be the right answer. We have this history in particle physics of experiments confirming previous experiments. And then we discover later, oh, all of those experiments were actually off by a big factor. And then the result jumps. So we have to be very careful because we only have one shot at this, right? You can't run the collider for 10 years again. We have one data set. You have to do it right in an unbiased way. 
So we hide the answer from ourselves to avoid being biased by what we expect to see. Mm, that's wild. It's wild that you would do the experiment and then just kind of sit on the data or work on it for 10 years. You know, I think as part of the public, you're sort of used to this idea of like a scientist in a lab and she's measuring something and she goes, Eureka, the results are there. But here it's like you, they do the measurement and then 10 years later, it's like, oh, hey, we found something. Yeah, well, most of the people left this experiment. This experiment used to have like 500 scientists on it in its heyday. And then the Large Hadron Collider turned on and almost everybody moved over to the LHC to work at CERN. But a few folks stayed behind because this measurement would take a long time and a lot of really careful work. And they thought it was worth it. So there's just like a few folks left and most of the lights are off and they're like wrapping up the last little bits of science you can do with this data. Right, right. And I guess it's tough because it's not like you can ask them to do it again. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you found this. That's interesting. Can you run it for me again and, and see if we find it again? You can because the thing is like 10 years old. It's been decommissioned for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's in pieces, literally, like it doesn't exist anymore. They've like built a museum where it used to be. Wow. All right. Well, what did they find? What was this experiment that they did? So the experiment is the collision of protons and antiprotons. So the experiment uses the Tevatron Collider, which smashes protons and antiprotons together at 2 trillion electron volts. And that's one-seventh the energy of the Large Hadron Collider. And it's different from the LHC in that it's protons and antiprotons instead of protons and protons, which is what the LHC collides. What? Really? You can make antiprotons? Yeah, and it's hard, which is why they didn't do it for the LHC. But at the Tevatron, we fabricated antiprotons by smashing particles into basically a big blob of rock and filtering out the antiprotons that come out the other side. Not very easy to make them or to store them or to insert them and accelerate them. It was a huge piece of work and kudos to the accelerator engineers at Fermilab who made that work. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I guess they're very ornery, right? Because they're very anti-everything. <laughs> they're not protons. Exactly, they're Antons. <laughs> Antons. <laughs> well, I, I guess what I mean is, uh, is this experiment similar to the Large Hadron Collider? Like, is, is it about, you know, spinning protons around in a ring and then you spin antiprotons, I guess, the other way in the same ring and then you bring them together? It's similar in idea to the LHC. You have a ring, you're accelerating particles around it. A few points around the ring, you smash those particles together to create collisions. So here you have protons going one way and antiprotons going the other way. And so you need two different rings because you don't want the protons and antiprotons to smash together except at the heart of your detector. But you can't actually use the same magnets because protons going one way get bent the same as antiprotons going the other way. So that was a clever trick. And so you smash a bunch of these a lot and then you look at kind of what comes out of it, right? And mostly what happens when you smash protons and antiprotons is a big flash and a lot of quarks flying out because quarks are created by the strong force, which is the most powerful force. And so it's the most likely thing to happen. The weak force is very weak. And so its interactions are much rarer. But sometimes what happens is you get a down quark from one particle and an anti up quark from the other, and they come together to make a W minus. Or you might get an up quark from one side and an anti-down quark from the other come together to make a W+. That happens very rarely in billions of collisions. And you filter those out and you get a few million examples after running for like 10 years. Wow. Uh, and so how long did they run this experiment? So this data set is about 10 years of running that ended in 2012. Wow. Wait, they ran it for 10 years? And then it, I guess that makes sense now. It took them 10 years just to go through all that data. Well, it takes 10 years just to get the data, just to like do the collisions and find those Ws, and then another 10 years to analyze it, to go through it and to get the answer. So from start to finish, it's 20 years. It's 10 years of data taking and 10 years of data analysis. 
and how long to build the thing. That must have been also like 10 years, right? Oh yeah, that was 10 or 15 years. They started that even earlier. That's back when I was a baby. So this whole project <laughs> is like as long as my lifetime. That's wild. Okay, so then you look at the debris from this, these collisions and somehow you piece together the measurement of the W boson mass. And I guess, what did they find? So what they found was not what they expected. All the other experiments in the world have measured this. The LHC has measured it. Other experiments at Tevatron have measured it. Experiments from other colliders have measured it. And they all came up with an answer of 80,370. That was the previous best measurement of the W boson mass. Okay, 8370. 8370. And people were pretty happy with that number because it agreed with what the theorists predicted. So theorists go into their offices and they sit down with calculations and they say the W boson sometimes interacts with the Higgs and with the top. And we know the mass of those particles. How heavy should the W be? And they do all their calculations and they come up with a number. And their number was 8357. So the old measurement was 8370. And the expectation from the theorists was 8357. Those were pretty close. So people were pretty happy. Yeah. And like you said, it came that 370 came from multiple colliders, right? Like, you know, they measured it in Geneva. They measured it in Japan. 370. And now this new measurement was 8434 with an uncertainty of just 10. So not only is it like 60 MeV above the theory, it's like above the other measurements with an uncertainty of just 10. So the result is shocking, not just because it's so much heavier than the previous measurements, but because it seems so confident. They're like, oh yeah, it's heavier, and we're very sure it's heavier. Well, as we've learned from U.S. politics, being uh, confident doesn't mean that you're right, <laughs> though, doesn't, doesn't it? Yeah, well, there's a difference between physics and politics, and this is one of them. Um. It's kind of an interesting scenario. So you're saying that like, uh, the theory predicts 357, most of the people who've measured this measure this to be 370 and they were all independent, right? With different colliders. But now this new measurement is uh, way higher. Wouldn't you just say like, hmm, there's something wrong here? You would, but this measurement is also the most precise of all the measurements we've made. This one claims to have the best handle on all of these details that affect the mass of the W. So on one side of the room, you have a bunch of imprecise measurements saying one value. On the other side of the room, you have one very precise measurement claiming something else. And so it's a puzzle. Yeah, I mean, uh, some someone must be wrong, kind of, <laughs> right? And it feels like this one's out there in the corner of the room by itself, whereas everybody else is on the other side. Mm -hmm. Somebody could be wrong or it could be random chance. And you can ask the question like, well, what's the odds of a random fluctuation? You know, these are quantum particles we're talking about. Sometimes those muons end up a little faster and the W looks a little heavier. That can happen. There's always statistics. But they calculated what are the odds of the W boson having the mass the theory expects and then CDF measuring this. And those odds are 1 in 10 to the 12. So it's very unlikely to be like a random fluctuation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that's what they got. But I guess as a skeptical, you know, engineer, you could... You know, if you're out there in the middle, in the corner of the room by yourself, maybe like there was something wrong with the equipment or something. What's the uh, certainty that they didn't make a mistake? It's a bit hard to pull apart. Like on one hand, I know these folks. They are the most careful scientists I've ever met. They're the kind of people where if you show them a result and there's one tiny little part of it that doesn't make perfect sense, like what's this wiggle over here? They will not let it go. And they will go down a rabbit hole for months to understand it. It can be very frustrating to work with these people because they are so detail oriented. And that's why it took them 10 years because they did so many insane cross checks just to make sure they didn't mess it all up. So they have a lot of credibility. On the other hand, their result disagrees with everybody else. 
And so you got to wonder if there's something that they haven't understood. And one area to look at is like this claim of their precision. They're claiming this measurement of 434 with an uncertainty of about 10. Some people have wondered whether that estimate is accurate, if in fact they really understand those uncertainties as well as they think they do. And it's not about them making a mistake in any one cross check. It's about how to arrive at this small uncertainty and then what that means. For example, they had many sources of uncertainty. How do they combine all of those two? I mean, if you have two uncertainties of 5 MeV, what's the chances of getting a 10 MeV fluctuation? The answer depends a lot on whether those two sources tend to fluctuate together or tend to cancel each other out. Now we're talking about understanding how likely a 60 MeV fluctuation is with lots of sources of uncertainty that are all around 5 MeV. To say that you know how likely that is means you think you understand the rare events really well and whether they fluctuate together or cancel out. So I think the result is probably right, but the uncertainty might be underestimated or the calculation of how unlikely we are to get this big a deviation might be a bit overstated. So in that case, the result might not really be in that much tension with the other results or with the theory results. Right. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to, um, you know, throw down on their work. I'm sure they're it's top notch and they're amazing scientists. I guess maybe the, the maybe the question that is on my mind is like, well, what could have been wrong with the other measurements that would, you know, what could be the, the reason this one is so different? What could have been wrong with the other measurements? You want to cast doubt on their qualities as a scientist instead? <laughs> well, I'm saying, no, 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 I'm saying, I'm saying is this, this new measurement is, is doing that. And what are they saying could be have been wrong with the other ones? Well, so they're not analyzing the other ones and criticizing them. They're just coming up with their measurement saying, here's what we got. And they did a lot of really important and impressive cross checks. Like they used the same method to measure the mass of the Z boson. The Z weighs about 91,000 of these MEVs. And just as a cross check, they're like, let's measure the mass of the Z. And they got it spot on agreeing with everybody else. So there's a lot of reasons to believe this. But as you say, it disagrees with the other measurements. And we don't understand that. The truth is, we don't understand the discrepancy between these experiments. There's two different important discrepancies. There's this new CDF result is different from what the theory expects. It's also different from the other measurements. And those are two things that we don't understand. I see. Nobody's saying nobody's wrong. Anybody's wrong. They're just saying like, hey, I know you guys did this, but this is we did this and we work hard and this is what we found. Let's let's all sit together and figure it out. So now we sift through it and try to think about it and try to understand where things could have gone wrong or if this one's right, what it means about particle physics. Right. Yeah, I was going to say the science headlines were not so <laughs> measured. They're like, oh, my gosh, did we break science? Has everything we thought was right? Has it turned out to be wrong? Right. It's that's sort of how this has been kind of um, portrayed in the media. Right. Like maybe we've been wrong all this time. Yeah. The most exciting way to read this is wow, this new measurement is right and it means that the theory is wrong. That means that the prediction of the W mass to be lower than what CDF just measured means that those predictions are wrong, which means that all those fancy calculations about how W bosons emit virtual top quarks and Higgs bosons, those must be wrong, which means there's something wrong in our theory of particle physics if this new measurement is correct. Mm, I see. And so I guess what specifically could have been wrong with our or could be wrong with our theory about the universe that this measurement exposes? The great thing about these kind of measurements is that they're a very general probe. 
like these masses are sensitive to the existence of basically every particle out there. Remember the muon G minus two measurement we talked about recently, you did that really cool cartoon about the reason that's so powerful is because it's sensitive to the existence of all these other fields out there that it can interact with. And the W mass is the same way when it's flying through space, it's sensitive to the existence of new particles we don't know about that might change its mass. So what this means is there might be other particles out there that make the W mass different from what our calculations assume. Our calculations use the existence of all the particles we know about, but if there are more particles out there, you would get a different W mass. Mm, I see. Yeah, it's sort of like the zoo analogy, right? Like, you know, we have this zoo diagram of all the particles, but if something's off, maybe it means that, uh, you know, the panda is sprouting off a, a little rabbit on the side and that nobody had noticed before. Yeah, or if you're feeding the panda three square meals a day and it's still gaining weight, maybe somebody's sneaking it some snacks and you weren't aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some, some physicists who are uh, overly interested in its weight have been um, snacking or helping it out. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe the clever panda is sneaking out of its cage at night and helping itself to the vending machine. There you go. Mystery solved. <laughs> but I guess it sort of points to this idea. And I think probably the reason that it got so many headlines is that, you know, everyone is interested in this idea of like, you know, we have this model of the universe. Maybe we've been wrong all along. And it's a little salacious, but it has happened in the past, right? It definitely has happened in the past. And, you know, there are two different ways to discover something new about particles in the universe. One is like, actually see some new particle like the Higgs boson and be like, look, here's something new. We found it. Another way is to just do a bunch of consistency checks between the particles we do know and see if they all add up. Because if they don't, it means that there must be some particle out there playing on the field that you're not aware of. So it's a little bit more indirect, but it's also a little bit more general. So it's a nice way to like cast a wide net to see, is there something new out there? And we would love to discover something new because it would help us understand all the open mysteries of particle physics. Yeah. And I guess it sort of takes a little bit of courage to do that, right? Like if you know that everyone is saying one thing, right? They have this measurement of the W boson that matches the theory. You know, it takes a lot for a scientist to go like, hey, I'm measuring it to be different to just sort of stick your head out there and, and say, hey, maybe it's different than what everyone thought it was. And, you know, they've known about this result since November 2020. That's when they removed that random number and actually saw the answer for the first time. And they kept it to themselves in a very small circle of folks while they worked for a year and a half to just double, triple check all of their double checks before they went out there in public with it. And I'm sure as you, as one of the authors, got to double check it, right? No, I wasn't even aware about this until two <laughs> weeks ago. So they kept this to a very small circle. Otherwise, you know, it would have been on the podcast a year ago. You folks would have been the first to hear. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Daniel, what's, uh, what's going on there? You, I thought you had connections. We should have been ahead of this story. No, I got the paper a few days before it was released to everybody else under embargo. Yeah, and I guess you also never know what's going to capture the imagination of the public, right? And the newspapers, right? Sometimes I feel like, you know, some these discoveries are seem like they're amazing and revolutionary, but hardly anyone notices. Yep, you can never tell what people are excited about. But particle physicists at least are excited. You know, the day after this was announced, there was a flood of new papers put out by theorists explaining this new result. They have some model where the Higgs boson is made of other smaller particles. It's not fundamental. And that explains the W boson. Or they have a model with some new crazy particle they call a Suino particle, like a weird super symmetric version of the W boson. And that would explain this. So now that we have this new result, the theory community is going wild coming up with ways to explain it. Well, I guess that's sort of how science works, you know, it's in a, a continual process where people are coming up with new ideas, new measurements, and you got to, you know, 
don't take the, the established facts uh, as established sometimes. Exactly. And if you trust what you've done and you've double checked everything, then you got to come out there with your answer, even if it flies in the face of other measurements, because, hey, maybe you're wrong or maybe they're wrong. History will sort it out. All right. Well, best of luck to uh, the scientists working on this. And um, I guess stay tuned to see who is not right, but, you know, who has um, the most to say about what's the mass of the W boson. That's right. We'll keep working on it. We'll make measurements of it at the Large Hadron Collider and, and at future colliders. And eventually we will know the truth. Yeah, we will know if Daniel was actually working on this or not. It might be a surprise, <laughs> even to himself. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.